Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you're in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Every week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Hello. Tonight, we are pleased and delighted to have with us as our special guest, uh, um, author, and a lot of other things, uh, <laughs> a, a, an experienced actor and published author, uh, Scott Farrell. He's a and renaissance man in every century. <laughs> uh he is. Uh, he has written articles on matter of matters of history, Arthurian legend, and the ideals of chivalry, which have appeared in many publications, including Renaissance Magazine, Chivalry Sports, Men Today, Military History, Police Magazine, Tournaments Illuminated, and Word San Diego. He's also written as a contributing editor for the books Living a Life of Value, uh, Val Press, 2006, and Martial Arts and Philosophy, Open Court Press, 2010. His on-stage work includes leading roles in productions of Camelot, The Music Man, Oklahoma, and the reduced Shakespeare Company's comedy, The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged. And, uh, as I understand it, you are working on a new book, um, which you are terming shorthand as S- Steampunk Shakespeare. Uh, yes, that, actually, that, that book is out and available now, published oh, last year. It is, uh, I see. Yes. Mm-hmm. And wh- which publishing, which, which presses? Uh, that is from Dr. Fantastique's Books. Hmm. Sounds like there's a those. story behind that too. I'm sure. I'm sure there <laughs> is, but that that story is not mine. So tell us about tell us about. Well, first of all, what's the whole title of the book? Because uh, the the full sh- title of this book, if you were to look it up on Amazon.com, is "The Omnibus of Doctor Bill Shakes and the Magnificent Ionic Pentatrameter, or a Steampunk's Shakespeare Anthology." A very good uh, Victorian style title. Hmm. So, what uh, what? What led you to? Uh, um, a st- a sh- I'm sorry, I, I'm stumbling over my own tongue here. <laughs> what led you to write a steampunk Shakespeare book? What was your? Well, was it was a, uh, there was a uh, an anthology being put together um, by some uh, by ed- editors Jamie Go and Matt Delman, um, 
they were looking for uh, contributing authors who knew something about both the fields of steampunk, the Victoriana, uh, and and Shakespeare. Uh, and having done an awful lot of Shakespearean uh, work and, and acting myself, I, I thought that would be a, a pretty fun challenge to to combine those two genres. Uh, and so I wrote the uh, the short story, uh, A Midsummer Night's Steam, which is obviously <laughs> obviously a Midsummer Night's Dream, a uh-huh. steampunk version. Um, and uh, it is it's the longest piece in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it, it's yes, a, a sort of a steampunk retelling of part of a Midsummer Night's Dream, specifically the uh, the portion of the, the the fairy king and queen Oberon and Titania, and their meeting with Bottom and the Mechanicals uh, in the in the well known vast forests just outside of Athens, Greece, um, in in the fifth century BC. So it's it's uh, brings in much more sort of the element of the lost continent of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with a with the sort of a steampunk uh, steam powered technology that 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 culture might have had uh, and a, and a lost ship a lost airship from Atlantis uh, having to be grounded uh, near the near the city of Athens and being stumbled across by this bumbling band of actors and uh, sort of a a censor cowl that looks very much like a donkey's head uh, being <laughs> being. T- being taken from the crew and oh, used by bottom and them having to recover it from him uh, and get back on their way uh, before before uh, daybreak. Wow. That's oh. well, Sitting here, I've just downloaded it for Kindle and I will leap into it after, after the uh, recording. It, it is a lot of fun and the, the, uh, the um, editors, um, Jamie and Matt, said specifically of Sent, set out some specific sort of challenges or goals for all of the authors that contributed to the book, um, one of which was that they they really wanted to see some of the characters, um, uh, the familiar Shakespearean characters, given a little bit of a twist of a, sort of a, a GLBT or disadvantaged, uh, differently abled characters. And so I made uh, the character of Puck be uh, a paraplegic uh, and he works in sort of this uh, steam-powered uh, um, helicopter chair that is his that is his uh, powered unidirectional uh, clockwork copter P U C K uh, <laughs> that that he gets around in oh, that al- that allows him to travel swifter than the wind. Um, the other thing that they wanted was for some element of the story to bring in a different understanding or a different interpretation of Shakespeare's work so that it wasn't just mm-hmm. wasn't just the Shakespearean text being given different props and costumes as it were but to actually kind of create a different sort of outcome or element to the story so uh, I brought in, uh, if, if you're familiar with the, the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream, there is the little Indian boy that Titania and Oberon are having their dispute over who, uh, in the original script, in the original text, does not have any lines. He doesn't really appear in the in the story. But in this case, uh, he becomes one of the junior mechanicals on board the ship, uh, and he's left behind. Uh, and it, so at the end of the story, the, the, little, mecha- the, the little Indian boy becomes a character that's much more familiar to us in history um, and his his involvement in the culture and technology of, of the uh, the lost continent of Atlantis becomes very important to who he will become as an adult and I, I won't spoil the story for you I'll let you you read and see who the, the the little Indian boy becomes when he grows up 
you can do an awful lot with Shakespearean characters, and they're they're the wellspring of a lot of modern fiction. Uh, how how much would you say your characters were informed by the original Shakespearean ones? Well, the the editors wanted specifically to use as much of the original dialogue in its in its entirety as possible. So they really sort of uh, wanted to have the, the, all, all of the authors change the words of the characters as little as possible. Uh, so yeah, it, it really was a challenge to bring out uh, to bring out this Shakespearean uh, dialogue and to set it in uh, to set it in. 6th century BC Athens and and to come up with a reason of why are they speaking Elizabethan English in ancient Athens uh, so yeah it was definitely sort of a fusion of that original Shakespearean character uh, in into you know much more of our modern understanding of the historical period and and certainly you know the 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 comic elements of Shakespeare as you say is you know that really is timeless and and uh, you know the bumbling the bumbling fools of of the mechanicals bottom and the other players um, you know that's that's as timeless as the Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy um, you know or slapstick comedy going back uh, you know going back to the golden age of Athens uh, you know so that in in its own way kind of became a way of uh, you know really bringing those characters to life in, in a very timeless way that that I think works you know very well uh, with a with a steampunk setting uh, just as it would with an Elizabethan setting so your story arc was a little bit contracted because you're you're really just working from a piece of midsummer night's right I mean you know you could you could have made if I if I tried to use the whole story of of any of Shakespeare's works but midsummer night's dream certainly you know that it would have been a whole novel unto itself so yes it, it really is just sort of the interaction of just those characters and, and and in doing that you can certainly you know you could extrapolate out the rest of the story if you wanted to uh, but uh, yeah it had to be it really had to be just a, a a slice of the whole play that we're familiar with do you have any other uh do they have any plans to do another one of these? Did it was it successful? Not that I've heard, but uh, I've certainly I know that sales of the book have been uh, fairly have done fairly well for them. So I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if if they had another uh, another such um, uh, book in the works uh, or or some other thought. I mean, I, you know, it would be interesting. Uh, I know steampunk is certainly a very popular uh, genre these days, but it would certainly be interesting to do another similar book of trying to adapt Shakespeare into another type of science fiction or fantasy um you know setting uh, either epic fantasy or or uh, you know high tech uh, science fiction that you know with a with a shakespeare twist that that might be a very interesting uh, collection of short stories as well hamlet the barbarian i can just say <laughs> yeah. yes. so do you have any other plans for uh, future literary uh, endeavors into steampunk uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 steampunk was not necessarily my uh, my forte before working in this book. I, I sort of had to, in order to make this work in uh, you know in, in the steampunk genre, I really had to research what is steampunk. What is it all about? I mean, so obviously, what I do had, you think it is? Well, I, I mean, when I give talks on this now at, at uh, science fiction conventions, what I try to point out is 
the element, the, the punk aspect of the steampunk, because I think a lot of people are, are drawn into books like um, uh, books, books like Dreadnought or, uh, or you know, Sherry Priest's uh, uh, Clockwork, uh, Clockwork um, Century series, uh, kind of by the trappings and the costumes and the technology. But we sort of forget that they're in, in steampunk, there is sort of that dystopian element, that aspect of sort of the individual struggling against uh, the industrialization of society. Um, and so to me that, you know, that's an element of, of those stories that I think rings very true today of, of, you know, still trying to find the, the importance of the individual and, and the contributions that the individual can make in a very technological society. Um, I, I think that's, that is sort of why steampunk speaks to people today. Uh, so that, that was why, that was what I sort of tried to focus on and, and bring out in, in my story. And I think that's, I, I think that that is still, you know, that really is what needs to be uh, present in steampunk works to keep them from just being, uh, you know, sort of gas lamp romance. So you're approaching this from the historical point of view more than, or the deeper historical, the uh, uh, the Shakespeare point of view. Well, and and uh, and much more, you know, sort of the full literary tradition uh, of steampunk. Not not to make you know, not to make it sound too serious or too heavy, um, but you know, really going back to some of those earlier works of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, and you know, one of the quotes that I came across when I was uh, when I was starting this was that uh, you know, in many ways. Um, Charles Dickens is as much sort of the a founder of steampunk as H.G. Wells or, or, or Jules Verne or the you know the pioneers well, of science you, fiction. Can you can you elaborate on that? I'm not. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, um, I mean Dickens. If you if you read his works, read things like uh, you know Oliver Twist or Tale of Two Cities. Well, there's your uh, dystopia. Isn't yeah, exactly. Well, there's the, exactly. There's yeah. the dystopia part. But right. Uh, yeah. It, well, so. I mean, but it I, is it is that spirit of of those characters that that's as true to to the to the steampunk as the steam powered technology is. Hmm. So it's it's sort of like trying to nail jelly to a tree here. The, <laughs> the whole the whole appeal of of steampunk seems to be um, uh, sort of the cognitive dissonance of the technology. That's yeah, the cognitive the the it's the the future of the past. Yes, and yeah, um, right. you know, I mean, it's it's all. The thing is that it's supposed to be this this uh, sort of a, a fantasy technology where things that wouldn't actually work in real life work there. Uh, and of I course, don't know. Have you tried it? Have you tried steam powered <laughs> boots? Well, not steam powered boots necessarily, but uh, my son and I were at um, uh, the. Uh, California Science Center about uh, five or six months ago and one of the exhibits they had there was uh, the aviation exhibit and one of the examples of early aviation was a steam-powered aircraft a steam-powered flyer a oh wing dear flyer. that's that's a bit doomed isn't it <laughs> uh, yeah and unfortunately that's exactly what the plaque on the thing said is that it, it never it never flew because it couldn't develop enough, um, uh, it couldn't develop enough thrust to stay airborne given the size of its boiler. Well, and if it did, anything goes wrong with the boiler, you're however <laughs> high off the ground. Yeah, well, that's yeah. The the problem, of course, is boiler equals 
water <laughs> somewhere. Uh, yes, yeah. and you're Which you're is? boosting that. You know, so it's so as far as uh, you know, as far as the the wonderful world of steampunk goes, it's not all wine and hoses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and 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 that I think you know, in some ways, is why I, it's such a mirror of sort of the current world. Is it's another time when. You know, if you look back into the end, the end of that long 19th century, it's another time when there was a culture that had a powerful global influence that was sort of on the wane, mm -hmm. Victorian England as opposed to the United States. Um, it was a time when there was a real explosion in innovation and technology, steam-powered versus internet-powered, mm -hmm. um, and and a time when that technology had an awful lot of promise and potential. I never but, really thought about that before. I guess yeah, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, but but when that steam power technology and its potential also came along with a lot of down a lot of downside, a lot of dark side to that to the technology and what it was doing to the people who, you know, were becoming more reliant on it. Well, for all the, you know, ladies having steam powered tea up in the up on their uh, airships, up in, you, up had, you had yeah. 50 guys, you know, shoveling coal down below. So, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we, we had um, uh, up at uh, the convention in, in December, we were having a discussion about, you know, sort of why, why is steampunk only a, a fiction why you know why why didn't this technology really pan out and you know the bottom line is exactly what you're saying is that there yeah, the there power, still was the power delivery of, of yeah, steam the potential well, for it is well what happened is was right. world war 1 was what happened it well and got and interrupted the, and the development of a far more uh, efficient technology of the internal combustion engine uh, you know we need need to remember that steam powered technology is still the external combustion engine and mm -hmm. it's not nearly as efficient as gas powered engines were and and because exactly what you're saying you know in order to make a steam powered airplane you have to have this gigantic heavy mechanism uh, to you know to boil the water and and to to utilize that steam power and it's not nearly as efficient as a as a piston engine that burns gasoline on the inside Right, and the the only other way you can store the energy is to just uh, use it to compress air, and at that mm -hmm. point, it's not steam it's not steam driven anymore. Right, right, yeah. Victory yeah. through air power. Victory through <laughs> yes. air power. It yeah, squirts like itself through the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, a, few, a few years ago, I, five or six years ago, I was reading about a, a car being made in Africa. Got to turn off my stupid phone, apparently. Uh, a car being made in Africa uh, uh, that uh, runs com entirely on compressed air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what did they do? Have the rest of the village sit there and go? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it <laughs> ran. It powered up. It, just inflated. It was just a big. There was a big, uh, uh, a big gasoline-powered air compressor. Ironically oh. enough. Yeah. Right. You know, but. Um, uh, in, in the use storing the energy that way, they could actually get much better use out of the out of the energy than they could if they were carrying the gasoline. Sure, 
Sure. Well, and and it is looking into you know Victorian uh, again that that long nineteenth century, the end of the Victorian era. It is astonishing the amount of things that they really had. Um, wh- when I did uh, a series of talks last year for the um, for the San Diego Library System uh, on on this on the book Steampunk Shakespeare, um, I did you know the the five Victorian inventions, the, the real steampunk inventions that you would never have guessed, uh, and they you know things like a steam-powered redwood submarine that uh, that there there was actually two of them floating around in in the oceans in in the uh, in the 19th century and uh, you know something that if you put it in a steampunk novel readers would go nah they'd never do anything like that <laughs> and of course uh, the age of steam in real life uh, you were mentioning earlier that it created all sorts of social uh, problems that we hadn't had to face before as well, the the elimination of people's jobs, mm-hmm. or the the delineation of the haves and the have-nots. Yep. That yep. that became that division became greater. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And one and one of the things that that is uh, that that often you know when I'm talking to people about steampunk literature that obviously draws people to this is that the beautiful craftsmanship of the era everything is made out of wood and brass and it's all handmade and you know and and, and people sort of say like oh well wouldn't it be back nice if we could go back to that and not have the mass produced everything made out of plastic and one of the things that we you know point out in these panels is yeah that's great but that means that everything that you make has to be everything that you buy is made by hand by those by those people that you're talking about the have nots that are laboring in some factory making uh, you know, making his lordship's toaster out of brass and wood. You know, crafting it by hand and not cranking it out in a in a, uh, a production line so that everyone can afford it. Um, and so you're, you're right; it, it it does. You know, the the it's the romance of that. But the downside that we don't think about is that means that there is a working class of have-nots that can't afford all of this beautiful, gleaming brass and and hardwood technology. Well, of course, in our in our uh, steampunk fantasies, we want to be Sir Sir Reginald hyphen hyphen twit monkey <laughs> right. Esquire. Yes. We do not want to yes. be Joe Grease Monkey. <laughs> yes, or, or at least if if you do want to be Joe Grease Monkey, you know you're you're the you're the plucky little uh, um, um, you know Tom Swift kind of inventor who makes his way up the ladder and and you know turns out to be uh, the hero in the plucky. end. Plucky, I like plucky. Yeah. Plucky's good. <laughs> So now that you've had a taste of writing steampunk, mm-hmm. uh, Susan asked if you had any more uh, thoughts about writing any more of the stuff. Has this opened a new um, a new window for you? You've you've been writing on chivalry and and uh, it's it's you know potential for good in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other fiction uh, plans? Well, my current uh, fiction project that I'm working on, the, the window that I would like for this to open, uh, since that was actually my first work of fiction that I've ever published, yeah, uh, my my uh, my next uh, project is uh, a novel called The Champion in Silence. Uh, it's about a girl like who becomes title. a knight of the round table, uh, and it's actually based on an 800-year-old legend uh, from the 13th century, uh, one of the only legends that we have from medieval history of a woman becoming a, a knight of a knight of king. <laughs> Sir Britomart, right? Uh, no, her name is Silence. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. 
Cornelius. <laughs> That's all right. Yes, yes, silence. It's a it, it's a French actually written uh-huh. in in medieval Picardy, um, and it's uh, about a, a, a girl who is raised in the guise of a boy um, who goes on to become uh, the greatest knight in all of England. Of course, just like every one of King Arthur's knights becomes the greatest knight ever, mm-hmm. uh, and and eventually becomes Queen of England. Oh gosh. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I'm working so on it. Sounds this is like all, a lot of fun. Yeah, this <laughs> has like, all the actual like a, accuracy of the court jester, but that's all right. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, all it speculative has, fiction, isn't it? It has all the accuracy of any of, of the legends of King Arthur's knights. Oh, that's a point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Since they live in a world that looks pretty much absolutely nothing like the actual mid, you know, Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, but yes, uh, you know, and, and and there are some problems in bringing it to a modern audience. Uh, like most Arthurian legends, we modern readers don't really find uh, much sympathetic in a character who every time she does something, she is the best at it, uh, and everyone that she comes across falls in love with her, mm-hmm. uh, and and she you know never seems to come across any challenges or, or obstacles that, that are not immediately overcome by her. But yeah, again, we that's... never see that in modern fiction. Right. <laughs> Wonder <laughs> yes, we... Woman cough. <laughs> well, well, Twilight, but in modern... for that matter. Everybody falls in love with that <laughs> chicky boo and she doesn't even earn it. Yes, but in modern fiction, we want to see you know the character that that has challenges and obstacles and may overcome them in the end. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, in in medieval literature, generally the hero is is never really challenged by uh, you know by any, any any sort of obstacles that they have any problem overcoming. So you know, th- there are some there are some issues with adapting it to a modern audience, but I think that it it's a story that certainly has uh, a great deal of potential to speak to a generation that was raised on Xena and Buffy and uh, Veronica Mars uh, and a variety of female heroes who are are perfectly capable of being the hero in their own right. And you've, um, and I th- and you've written uh, you've written a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer uh, novella. Is that right? Yes, uh, yes. I wrote um, uh, a novella for the. There was a series of books that came out called Tales of the Slayer uh, that were oh, short neat. stories. Okay, short so this just this isn't just fanfic. This is this Correct. is the yeah. serious stuff. Okay, yeah. great. Um, the, the 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 there were four four uh, volumes. Um, and they were all collections of short stories that were about other vampire slayers in other times and places. Uh, and so uh, this was uh, this was a, a story that I wrote for that collection. Sadly, they did not come out with the fifth fifth volume in, in that. <laughs> but I'm I'm still keeping my fingers crossed for that. Uh, so I just I published it. Now that we have uh, you know the ability to do uh, e-publishing online very easily these days, uh, I just I published it as its own novella. Uh, it's a standalone called The Fall of a Slayer. So this is not Buffy, this is one of her predecessors. Correct, yes. This is a predecessor of Buffy back in the 70s. Her name is Kayla the Vampire Slayer. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's a story that is very much based on... Uh, I was inspired uh, to do this story by the movie... Um, uh, oh, and now I'm drawing a blank. By the movie A Million Dollar Baby. Oh, okay, I was about to say yep. it could be any movie. It could be, you <laughs> it could know, be Foxy movie. Brown. It could be, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> the unsinkable Molly Brown. That's <laughs> yes. not the seventies. <laughs> um, the the it's not Clint even Eastwood, the eighteen seventies. 
the Clint Eastwood movie uh, Million Dollar Baby uh, that was uh, sort of the very uh, very much a twist on the boxing movie genre uh-huh. um, and so mm-hmm. I took I took that basic story structure and put it into the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe so we have uh, Kayla the Vampire Slayer um, sort of taking on that that title role and and playing out uh, along those lines so if you have seen that movie Million Dollar Baby I, I don't have to tell you that this doesn't have a real happy ending, uh, but the slayers I, I, seldom do. <laughs> yes, uh, but I was very pleased with it. So uh, um, I know uh, uh, I, I, I hope that it uh, plays out with with the fans, my fellow fans of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I I have been accused of being somewhat obsessive about that uh, about that show. We don't uh, but know I anybody hope... like that. Oh no, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Uh, but I hope that my fellow Buffy fans enjoy it. We know a group. Uh, a group of fans that we're personally friends with that would absolutely love to see this. Oh, excellent. The, the Southern California Brown Coats, the Whedonopolis mm-hmm. uh, website, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, Whedonopolis.com, for those of you listening, is uh, one of the top two Joss Whedon fan sites in the world. And uh, you should go look them up. They're, they're, they're all friends of ours. We're all, it's amazing how connected. Uh, how connected fandom is at this level, and it's sure. just they, we ha- we have a lot of fun with them, and they're always doing amazing stuff. Oh, excellent! So, let's see uh, some of the other things that you've done. Uh, you are you know a lot about history and Arthurian legend, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you've lived it. <laughs> Some have accused me of that. Yes, I, uh, I I did. In fact, as as many of the kids when I do uh, when I do my school presentations uh, for the younger grades for the elementary school kids, uh, I come in and play the role of King Arthur uh, for them and and introduce them to the Arthurian legends. And many of the kids ask me, "Are you really King Arthur?" Well, I can tell them, yes, I actually sat on the throne in Camelot because I was in a stage production of the musical Camelot and I played King Arthur. So does that make me the real King Arthur? I don't know. That's that's up to them to answer. Possibly <laughs> as close as anybody's ever going to get. I, I suppose so. Yeah. Since uh, King Arthur was potentially an amalgam of, of stories of several different kings. The king sure. who was, the king who shall be. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen you rain twice. <laughs> well, and there is that too, yes. Uh, She's I, referring I, to the Society for Creative Anachronism. In which right, I'm a longtime participant in the uh, Southern California chapter of the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is a medieval reenactment group, and have even served as king twice there. And brought some of your uh, dramatic uh, presentation to, <laughs> to uh, enhance the whole experience for the, everybody. Hopefully the good kind of drama. Tell us about uh, your experience. Theater, not drama, as we said. <laughs> Yes. Tell us about your experience with the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Yes, uh, my first uh, professional acting job on stage here uh, down in San Diego with the La Jolla Stage Company. Uh, I was, I, I hate to say, I, I always say I starred in the 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 performance of uh, the complete works of Shakespeare Bridge, but there's only three people in the, in the show. It's not really like <laughs> it's not really like I was, uh, you know, anything uh, unique. Uh, this was me- not your Lear. This was your <laughs> correct. Your Lear, correct. your bottom, your. <laughs> Well, of I, dogs Barry, right, well, you know? I, I did play Macbeth, but it was only for 30 seconds in that play. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you can expect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's a, it's a wonderful play, and I had a great time. In fact, uh, we, 
we performed for four weeks at the La Jolla Stage Company, and then the show was uh, popular enough that it was uh, held over at another theater here locally, Sixth at Penn, uh, for, an for another four weeks. Um, and so, uh, yes, it's, it is... Uh, it, it is a, a nominally an attempt to perform at least some part of all of Shakespeare's plays in an hour and a half. Uh, oh so it, it is very much sort of a madcap, uh, you know, slapdash uh, performance of little bits of every uh, every piece of Shakespeare, um, and uh, uh, and it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot. Mostly, it's a lot of guys. Uh, you know, wearing uh, dresses and, and dressing in drag, uh, and, and just like real Shakespeare, just like real Shakespeare, not, yes, indeed, not much uh, of a and, and throwing water <laughs> at each other and and uh, passing out on stage and and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's it really, uh, I think, if you know a lot about Shakespeare, there is a great deal of inside jokes that you will find in there. Uh, and the if you more, are the more you know, the funnier it is. Yes, right. Uh, the more you know, the funnier it is. But also, if you're if you're one of the many people who think, oh, Shakespeare is boring, I just can't understand it, <laughs> you, you, you go to that and you realize, oh, wow, you know, Shakespeare is, Shakespeare is a lot of fun. Shakespeare is not just, you know, stuffy and boring and full of these and thous. Uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of wit and slapstick in Shakespeare, and it can be a lot of fun. Been there, done that. I, you know, <laughs> I, I had to have someone explain some of the words to me but once i did it was a laugh riot sure yeah there well very and, funny bits of henry v who knew who knew yes right and 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 you know most of shakespeare's works they, they, uh, you know let's let's combine what we were just talking about shakespeare and joss whedon um you know and because both of them both of those uh, sources really make excellent use of bringing out the drama and the emotion by by uh, you know contrasting it with a moment of humor right at the highest moment of emotion the 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 sorrow the tension the you know the fear uh, it, it can really be highlighted by humor and I you know I think a great a great instance of that is you know in Macbeth when you know the Macbeth has just murdered the king in the middle of the night and is walking around with blood on his hands literally. And here we have the porter, the gatekeeper, coming out and you know telling jokes about who's at the door. Uh, you know, literally the original knock knock joke, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, which only highlights that tension of wait, is 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 the murderer going to get caught? What you know, what's going on here? Uh, so I think that's a beautiful way of of really recognizing that even in what we would think of as the most maybe stuffiest or seriest of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, Macbeth. Romeo and Juliet. There's also some great humor to be found. So, let's see. The one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about that I mm -hmm. thought we should discuss is that you have a very large, important project, and that is Chivalry Today. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell Can you tell our listeners what that is and and uh, and how that came to be? Absolutely. Why it would be a better world if everybody <laughs> read it. Uh, well, uh, about 13 years ago, uh, I started an educational program called Chivalry Today. Uh, it was based in large part on my, uh, on my participation and experiences in medieval reenactment groups like the Society for Creative Anachronism that we mentioned earlier. Um, and it was a way of kind of bringing the things that I and my friends enjoyed in those groups of, you know, sort of that 
the romance of chivalry and honor, the the interest of learning about life and ages in the past, uh, and being able to bring that into schools and libraries and camps uh, in a variety of presentations uh, that helped uh, that helped teachers and uh, and other educators that are studying the Middle Ages and Renaissance um, in a variety of ways, and so. Uh, through the Chivalry Today educational program, uh, I can bring into a, a school, we can bring in almost like a traveling renaissance fair, uh, demonstrations of sword fighting and, and combat, um, hands-on presentations of arms and armor, uh, demonstrations of falconry and, and live birds of prey, uh, full-sized catapults and talking about engineering and the rules of warfare, costumes and, and fashion of the past. Um, and all of those are presented with an eye towards understanding not just uh, life in medieval times and, and, and the Renaissance, but also understanding about how the ideals of chivalry and honor that they lived by still can and should inform life in the world today and recognizing that our society in the 21st century is not so dreadfully different from the world of the Middle Ages as we might think and, and to really start to see why they created this concept of chivalry to make their society a little bit more uh, productive and safe and a pleasant place to be, uh, and, and how those ideals can still make our world a productive and pleasant and, and, and safe place to be in, in the world today. And certainly, you know, yes, we, we take those ideals of chivalry uh, and apply them to things like the military, law enforcement. Uh, politics, uh, the, the law, and, and, and lawyers. And, I would like uh, to see more chivalry system. in politics these days. <laughs> yes. yes, indeed. And, that and seems to be absent. I think, uh, I think uh, probably two-thirds of Congress should go back and uh, read your website. And, and, and focus a little bit uh, more on, on the ideals of chivalry. It would certainly, certainly hopefully make our government a little bit more productive place. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we point out as we're talking about politicians, and, and usually when I ask young students if they think that there is any sense of justice or honesty in, in politics, usually there's quite a chuckle that comes up amongst the adults uh, that are kind of sitting on, on the sidelines. Um, and, and, you know, I, and, and again, I, I think it's a, a very interesting mirror uh, into the past to recognize that, uh, you know, not all knights lived by the code of chivalry. There were plenty of knights in medieval history that were violent and corrupt and, and cowardly and selfish. But that's uh, what the round table was about. It was and, to, and, to correct people like that. Right, and, and that's what the ideals of chivalry, right, whether, whether it was done through through uh, legends and fiction, or whether it was done through uh, writings on the ideals and values of chivalry in the in the real world of the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, they recognized that although only a few people maybe lived up to those ideals, uh, that didn't make the ideals invalid. That it was still important to have ideals to try to live by, even if most people fall short of them. Uh, and so I think the same thing applies to us today. We can recognize that we still have ideals of honesty and truthfulness and duty and service to our country. We may not all live up to them. Uh, I, I certainly hope that when people look back on our society 500 years from now, that maybe we have a little bit better reputation than medieval knights do. I'm not sure we will. But, uh, but you know, that, that doesn't invalidate the ideals that we try to live by. And there certainly are individuals who exemplify the ideals of honor and service and duty that, that we all want to look up to, um, they may be the exception rather than the rule, uh, just like chivalry in the Middle Ages was the exception rather than the rule. Uh, but 
that, again, that doesn't invalidate the fact that we all try to live by those ideals. And if we look around in the world today and see that maybe we fall short of those ideals, well, tomorrow we can try just a little bit harder. Uh, and, and that's really what the writings of chivalry in the Middle Ages were all about, of, of reminding knights and ladies and kings and princes and, and abbots and, and cardinals and, and everyone in, in that time that to try to live by a code of honor was an important thing and that without a sense of honor and duty, society falls apart. Uh, and, and I think that's you know, sort of what we struggle with today. The Japanese called it Bushido. Yes, indeed, which was, which was for many decades called the Samurai Code of Chivalry. Yeah, and, and it really is it's remarkable to see the many similarities between Bushido, uh, which was the Samurai Code, uh, and, and Chivalry, which was the Code of the Knights. A lot of the same values are emphasized. Duty and honesty and loyalty, uh, you know, all very important values for a Samurai, all of which were very important in the Code of Chivalry as well. And a lot of what we know about uh, chivalry in ancient times in Japan and uh, chivalry in, in, uh, in Western civilization mm-hmm. comes to us through the stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. In, yes. in specifically Arthurian legend. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting to contrast those stories of the Arthurian legend, uh, which certainly. Uh, put up the values that they, they tried to live by the, or that they held as important. I think it's uh, very interesting to compare those to our modern uh, you know, tales that, that perform the same function, uh, and uh, which I think you, know, you can't really find a better example of that than uh, you know, the superhero stories, uh, the, the, the tales of Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, the Avengers, things that are immensely popular today uh, and really do serve the same functions as the those tales of the round table of the Middle Ages. Susan and I just gave each other a thumbs up when you said that, <laughs> because, of course, we're, you know, it's Krypton Radio. We sure. can't uh-huh. help but being comic book fans here, too. Yeah. And, no, the but, Justice League was their own round table, wasn't it? Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, each, and each, each knight brings his or her own uh, talents to the table to, mm-hmm. to make the world a better place. And of course, sure, yeah. they also bring their, each of them brings their own weaknesses and foibles as well to make the stories interesting so that we pay attention to the lessons that are to be learned. Right. Yeah. And, and very much, you know, like, very much like the Knights of the Round Table and the, of the, the Justice League, the Avengers, you know, whatever group you want to talk about like that, you know, very much the message of the story is that, hey, it's easy to live by a sense of honor when you're in the halls of Camelot, sitting around the round table with your friends, you know, the knights of the round table feasting, it's really easy to live by a code of honor then. When it's hard is when you get out in the real world and, you're, and you come across people who are dishonest, who want to take advantage of you, who are corrupt, who are, you know, who are trying to hurt you. That's when it's difficult to stick to that code of honor or to see how that code of honor plays out in a world that doesn't always live up to those ideals. And, and I think that's why, you know, I think that's why those stories of the Justice League, I think that's why they are so intriguing, uh, is, you know, as you say, it, it lets those characters, all of whom have their own take on the importance of a sense of honor and where it lives or where it plays out in their own lives, you know, how do they, how do they relate to the, the, the people outside the halls of the halls of justice, the halls of the Justice League, uh, as they go about their duties. So what are you working on now? What's, what big projects are you, do you have in the hopper? 
Well, currently my currently my focus is uh, is on my novel, the Chronicle or the uh, the, the oh, Champion yes. in Silence, which is the first hopefully novel in a series of the Chronicles of Silence, which will tell the story of Sir Silence and her rise to the Round Table. Um, I'm also uh, I'm also currently working w- uh, here locally in San Diego with the Intrepid Shakespeare Company and their educational outreach program, uh, the the school tour that we put on. Um, for schools all throughout Southern California, uh, doing one-hour performances of several of Shakespeare's work. We, we come into uh, school campuses and do performances of Romeo and Juliet, uh, of A Midsummer Night's Dream, of Hamlet and Macbeth and Androcles and the Lion, uh, and kind of talk to the kids about enjoying Shakespeare and, and uh, a- the, the profession of acting uh, and, and get kids interested in both of those things. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. San Diego has a replica of the old Globe Theater. It's not a replica. Uh, the San, San Diego has the Globe Theater that puts on a uh, a summer Shakespeare festival every year and has been around for I'm um, gonna say almost a century now because it was it was built during the uh, World Expo back in the 19. 19- teens at some time uh, but it's certainly a world class Shakespearean theater I, uh, I, was, I was under the impression that it was modeled on the original Globe Theater well uh, I, I only that say Shakespeare, that Shakespeare uh, yeah is it a I modern, only, you know, uh, stage theater? Or yes, is that, that's real? that's correct. From from the outside, the building looks very much like the original Globe, but ah. you go in inside, and it's it is a modern it's a theater. Modern theater. With, yeah, okay. with lights and seats and and a sound system. It's not right. like seats. It's, it's, <laughs> Big wussy. <laughs> well, yeah. What are the groundlings? What is it coming to when the groundlings get to sit down? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's not like the Globe in London, where the interior is uh, you know it, it is an exact replica, as much as we can tell, of of Shakespeare's Globe. Other projects that I'm working on, I, you know, I mentioned also uh, the the school uh, the school educational outreach program that we yes. work with through Chivalry today. Uh-huh. Um, we've got uh, oh about a dozen uh, school Renaissance fairs that we're putting on uh, between now and June uh, that will be uh, at, v- at a variety of of middle schools and high schools throughout San Diego. Uh, again, you know, as I say, putting on presentations of sword fighting and falconry and and uh, siege warfare and uh, costuming ooh, and co- ooh, let's cooking. Let's have some siege warfare. Let's let's bring out the uh, the siege towers and uh, you know, let, let me tell you, there's people on the second floor of the math class. Let's, <laughs> let me tell you, that there's nothing more that will nothing that will get kids in more interested in learning history than flinging a catapult out of a. Uh, so, flinging a cantaloupe out of a two-story catapult that we construct on campus. (laughs) Punkin' chunkin'. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So you've been doing this for a number of years now. I I have to think that, uh, that the collection of all of this stuff has to be your day job. I mean, this is, uh, this is uh, yeah. a, a, yes. a huge dedication of time and effort. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that 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 is one of the one of the full time jobs that I have. Um, certainly, <laughs> going around to uh, going around to schools, especially in the in the early part of the year when most of when most of the schools are studying the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Uh, the other thing that we do through the Chivalry Today program on a on a very regular basis is uh, we teach historical sword fighting. Uh, we call it historical European martial arts down here in. San Diego. We have three classes a week uh, where 
teens and adults come and learn the uh, the medieval art of fighting with the longsword, as they did in the 14th and 15th centuries. So this is not just wailing away with it, like you know, playing with a with sticks. They, there's a lot of discipline and honor yeah. being taught here. Correct. Yeah, and you're, and, you're subverting our, our little minds. That's, <laughs> yes, that's good to hear. Exactly. Yes, I am. I am. Uh, I'm planting in there the seeds of of people who uh, can compete uh, and and live, you know, with a with a life of honor and and much like uh, much like you know medieval tournaments, uh, we approach learning the art of sword fighting uh, as not as a modern sport as it, as it is done. You know, I, I've seen some Western martial arts programs that do very much approach learning these historical sword fighting techniques much more as a modern sport. It, it, it's, it's judged, there's referees, and, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's performed very much, like I say, as a modern sport or as a modern martial art. For us, part of the importance of what we're doing through these programs is approaching it with a sense of honor, of, of recognizing the respect and trust that all of our students have to have when they are out there swinging swords at each other, um, and recognize that we can't do this safely in, a, in an environment where we don't trust each other, where we, are, where we put winning first. We can't, we can't have that. We've got to have you know, a sense of honor and respect of knowing that uh, you know, the safety and well-being of our partners comes first uh, and only only after that you know can we compete uh, you know I- I with our with our with our skills uh, with our with the art of sword fighting um, and, and that that are that we must respect each other first and that really does come out of that sense of chivalry of of, of recognizing that self-control uh, and self-discipline is really the primary focus of learning to sword fight or to joust or to compete in a tournament, um, and, and that your, your your real opponent is that inner sense of vanity and and pride, and and those are the things that you're really competing against. Your opponent is just someone there to give you an outlet. Uh, to compete against your own, you know, your own inner vices. Well, you called him a, a partner rather than an opponent or an enemy, and I think right, yes, it, it, yeah, yeah, volumes. Right there. Yes, uh, yeah. W- w- once you realize you're out there, you know, again swinging a deadly weapon at each other, you don't want to be doing that against someone who treats you like an opponent or a foe. Uh, it is very much a partner, very much someone again that you're, you're approaching with a sense of trust and respect. We can certainly still have a very competitive, uh, a com- very competitive activity, a very competitive environment. But yeah, we need to do that as partners uh, and not as not as competitive rivals. Well, I think that extends to many parts of chivalric life. Um, you know, one thing I learned was, you know, you treat those under you, you know, as, as your partners in achievement. You right. feed the men and the animals before you feed yourself when you're a general. Right, right. And yes. And I think if more modern companies did that, we'd, we'd be a more profitable country. Th- that's, certainly, that's certainly true. And, and you know, th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a very good quote that I often use to illustrate that by a, a, one of the, uh, of course, recognized experts in chivalry, Dave Barry, the, the famous humorist, <laughs> uh, who says, uh, a person who, who treats you well but does not treat the waiter well is not a nice person. Um, oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. Yeah, the person that treats someone who has who can has nothing to gain, uh, you know that that's the way you should you should treat others. Uh, 
the uh, I have to I have to believe that what you're doing is having an effect. I mean, over you've been doing this now for how many years? Uh, we're years going into our thirteenth year. Thirteen yeah. years. Yeah. Have you noticed uh, a general effect in the uh, in, in the what do I want? Have the, you seen any of you know fruits of your labors here? What, yeah, I, I think. Do you certainly, have any stories to tell us? That, <laughs> you know, uh, that, yeah, well, certainly. Um, you know, certainly, I see amongst our regular students, particularly the teenagers that come to our uh, to our sword fighting class. Um, you know, yes, I, I can certainly see among 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 those students um, a much greater understanding of what the values of. I don't even need to use the word chivalry, but just the the values of ethics, of of honor, of of self of uh, self respect, um, of them taking that uh, t- into other things that they that they do, their schoolwork, the way they treat their parents, uh, the way they treat each other, um, and I think even when we go into a school campus, uh, you know, even if we're just there for a couple of hours. Uh, I can see a change in the students from the beginning of our presentation to the end, and 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 not to you know pat myself and our other interpreters on the back or, or anything like that. I think that it's it's simply a recognition, especially at that age, especially in that seventh and eighth grade time frame. Those kids are really at a crucial time at their life uh, when they're really kind of taking all of those things that they learned as a child, and now seeing seeing all of that through the lens of potentially being an adult and recognizing wait a minute the things that i learned as a kid they don't that, that it's not as black and white as people told me how do i deal with these shades of gray and all they need to do i think is see someone who treats a sense of honor seriously who talks to them about the importance of being honest and fair and compassionate and respectful within a serious voice without a wink without telling them oh well well that sort of thing only applies when no one else is you know don't don't worry about that when no one else is looking um but when they see somebody treating those concepts seriously all of a sudden they they realize that that those things don't need to be abandoned just because they're moving out into the world of getting a job or trying to get into college or dealing with you know sports uh, on campus or any of the number of myriad problems that they're going to run into that they see oh yeah i still can keep that sense of honor and respect and honesty that i learned about uh, I, I can treat that seriously and still be an adult and i think that's a, a big revelation for them well, just wait till those kids start getting into you know san diego city politics huh? <laughs> well I'd love to hopefully see so. your, your students uh win win the mayorship things be, <laughs> things would be different I would, oh. I would like to see that as well. I'd be very interested in seeing what your young charges do when they become adults. Yeah, well, and, and you know, uh, I, I hope that when I am in my, my golden years and sitting on the porch of my, you know, retirement home, that, uh, you know, yes, I can see exactly that. So, oh, come on, so, you'll be sitting there going, you kids, get off of my lawn! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kids, get off of my lawn and run for, run for mayor. <laughs> Something. Scott Farrell, it's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Uh, You are listening to the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. Scott is the, among other many remarkable things, is an author of uh, one of the stories in the Omnibus of Dr. Bill Shakes and the Magnificent Ionic Pentaterometer. Did I get that right? I think it's actually Pentatrameter. Pentatrameter. It sounds like pentameter only. Now. Okay. Uh, yes. That is uh, ISBN 
in print, 9870-9858570-5. For the e-publication, the last two digits are 1 and 2. It's published by Dr. Fantastic Books, copyright uh, 2012 by the Dr. Fantastic Company. Uh, Scott, it's been a great pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much for appearing on Krypton Radio. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here with you. And now to find that um, that little button which ends the show, and I think I've got it right there. You have been listening to Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. Join us next week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, for the next episode of The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens.